This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Hamilton's mayor commented on LRT uh, saying that the project remains in jeopardy of being uh, stalled if community if commu- if the community chooses to elect councillors uh, this year who oppose the project. He continues saying the project will continue to be at risk uh, until shovels are in the ground. Uh, here is a clip from... Uh, Patrick Brown, uh, current leader of uh, the Ontario PCs, on whether they will honor uh, the LRT commitment if, in fact, uh, the Conservatives are elected and the government changes uh, coming up next summer. It's going to be up to Hamiltonians to decide what's best for Hamilton. And as long as it's the will of Hamilton City Council, I'm going to continue to support it. And right now there's a clear vote of Hamilton City Council saying that uh, this is their top transit priority. Um, and, I, and I will make sure those dollars are there and that we honor the commitment of the province of Ontario. All right. So there you have it. Uh, so it seems that the only people that really are, are unclear on whether uh, Hamilton wants this or not, or is not the government's, it's city council. Here's what Donna Skelly had to say. The conservative government guarantees the money or our share of that money for Hamilton. And I believe our share is between six and seven hundred million dollars. That money stays in Hamilton, and council will decide how to use it. If they want it to be spent on LRT, it will be spent on LRT. However, it isn't, does not have to be spent on LRT. If council chooses to spend that money on infrastructure and enhanced transit, they can then spend the money on improved uh, infrastructure and transit. Uh, that seems to be uh, different from what Patrick Brown is saying. Um, I, I don't know who you believe or which one uh, is speaking more uh, accurately. Uh, Donna Skelly speaking about six hundred to seven hundred million dollars. The, the it was one billion for transit. It was one billion for LRT. I'm sorry, uh, and then substantially less if you just wanted to upgrade the bus upgrade the busing system. So let's bring in Larry Deany, former mayor, city of Hamilton. Uh, he is with us now. Um, Fred Eisenberger uh, on holiday still for uh, vacation uh, and uh, not able to reach him. Larry is with us now. Larry, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. My pleasure, even though I'm number two again. No, you're always number one. You know me. <laughs> so, so Larry, what are your thoughts about this latest rhetoric? What, who do we believe here? Well, I think I think uh, you know it's it's I think you believe them all, um, uh, even though everyone's looking at it from a different perspective, and I think that's the that's the point. Uh, I was pleased to hear Patrick Brown say that uh, uh, he's going to follow the wishes of uh, the community, as represented by council. Uh, I think uh, Councillor Skelly, uh, who has you know been wary on this file right from the get go. Uh, is talking about a different uh, outcome uh, that you'd like to see uh, that money being put to, uh, and that's her right to voice that opinion, even though uh, right now the council has made a decision, as we know, to move this project forward. And that's why I was a little surprised, um, it's, and it's not inaccurate for, for the mayor to say that, you know, this project... Uh, is at risk until the shovels hit the ground because a political change uh, would alter those plans or could alter those plans. Uh, I think that there would be uh, a price to pay for for changing plans at that late date, Uh, but nevertheless, that could happen. 
But I was surprised that he said that because in saying so, he really um, has made it a, um, a municipal election issue, uh, more so than it might have been otherwise, especially his exhortation uh, that if Hamiltonians like this project, uh, they need to vote for councillors who support the project. Uh, that squarely then puts the ball in the political court, uh, and if people have to have a wedge issue uh, uh, that drives votes, this may be it. I don't know whether it will be, but it certainly increases that potential, uh, especially since the mayor of the city is indicating uh, that dynamic is at play. Uh, Patrick Brown has said he will support what the Ontario government has uh, has put forward. Uh, Donna Skelly is saying we've got six to seven hundred million dollars to spend how we want. Uh, what's the six to seven hundred million versus the one billion for LRT? Yeah, so I have not spoken with Councillor Skelly, and uh, it would be interesting to see how she would explain that. But I know that uh, you know if you go back to the last election. There were discussions, even before we'd been given the billion bucks, uh, that there were discussions around BRT as well as LRT, and the BRT plan, I think, was considerably less expensive. Yeah. Uh, but, but gosh, that's so much water under the bridge right now, because not only have we been given the billion dollars, uh, actually it's a billion two hundred and fifty million, uh, because there was also money for, uh, for enhanced go transit, um, uh, station around the uh, uh, the Highway 20 area as well, uh, which is uh, imminently going to begin uh, being constructed as well, uh, if, I, if memory serves me correctly. So it's a lot more money than a billion dollars, and council, based on that promise, has um, uh, you know after all the permutations, combinations, and and uh, concerns, has ratified the project, uh, and in fact extended it from uh, the traffic circle where it was going to be to Eastgate Square. Right. So I, th- I thought that discussion had happened and we're well into implementation. So well, what do we do? Do we just keep holding votes till council gets the result it wants? Like, I don't get that. Either we've, it, this has already been voted on, has it not? So for me, it's, you know, deja vu all over again to some extent because uh, remember that other infrastructure project uh, that I had a hand in, uh, the Red Hill Expressway, uh, was 54 years in the making. So this is yeah. this is a blink of an eye compared to that. But that had multiple votes and uh, people objecting and pleading with council, making uh, a representation to council, uh, became election issues in a number of uh, elections, and finally it was decided when it was the ballot box question uh, when I ran and won for mayor back in 2003, and the construction finally went ahead. So, so it's not unusual for projects of this type uh, to um, to have a to and fro. Uh, but my gosh, it isn't good uh, for planning because we we're spending money as we speak. There are people employed by the city of Hamilton, uh, spending money, um, provincial money at this stage but I'm sure some of our money is also going into it as well. Uh, And they're planning for what they think is the definitive plan, and that is to implement LRT from Eastgate Square to McMaster University. And to to sort of throw um, cold water on that uh, is of concern. Not that the mayor uh, was throwing cold water on it, because 
uh, all the people around that council table, I think he has been steadfast uh, in his support. There are a couple of others as well, but he certainly has. But to raise the specter of a change dynamic around the political table as a means of uh, maybe changing the outcome of that plan uh, is a little uh, concerning. So, so Larry, what, what's the process here? Do they just keep calling more votes until it gets thrown out? Well, I'm not aware that any more votes have to be called. I know that um, uh, I know that there are other votes that have to occur around other aspects of the implementation, uh, notably, uh, you know, the cost-sharing agreement uh, and all of that. Uh, but as far as I know, the implementation plan uh, now uh, fully controlled by uh, by Metrolinx. Uh, is proceeding. As I said earlier, there are people in charge of that file that are working every day uh, on different aspects of implementation. I know that contracts uh, had to be let out and there was this hiatus while they sorted out the HSR uh, pl plot to uh, uh, take over some of the operations, but that was resolved. And so I think we're waiting, and I, I'm not current on the absolute details of this, but I think we're waiting for some of those uh, uh, requests for proposals to be uh, issued. Are Skelly and Brown on the same page? It almost seems like there's a conflict of interest here. Well, I wouldn't say conflict of interest because um, I, I, I think, I, look, I, I think Patrick Brown is saying what, what a, a responsible leader should say in, on this file. And he's saying that decisions have been made by a previous government, and as long as the council of the city representing the people of the community are still okay with the plan that they've asked for, he's going to support it. Uh, and so I think that needs to be taken into consideration. Um, and I've not talked to, to Donna. Donna's pretty astute, uh, and she wouldn't say anything that, you know, uh, would... would uh, uh, you know, render her, her position uh, to, to be less than uh, less than uh, smart about this particular plan. But I think what uh, she is talking about, and I didn't hear the full quote other than the snippet you just played, uh, what she's talking about is a scaled-down version of a plan that I'm sure if she gets elected provincially, she'll try to get um, to, be, to be implemented. And so there would need to be a a discussion between her and her leader, should she get elected, uh, to have that occur. If she stays on council, if uh, Council Partridge uh, gets elected and she stays on council, uh, then, uh, you know, the council plan still wins the day. But the other interesting dynamic, of course, is that Council Partridge has been skeptical of this project, and now she would be in the federal, in the uh, provincial arena. And she'd have to have a talk with her leader about exactly what was being funded. Uh, love to be flies on the wall of both of those conversations. So is it now the mission of these councillors who disagree with LRT to now convince the rest that we don't want it? Then that's the only way to get uh, whoever's the next leader to shelve the whole thing? So I, I, think, uh, I, I think that uh, uh, there are a couple of issues there. One is um, that council has committed to this LRT and there is no off-ramp. The only, uh, the only uh, issue to iron out, which may present some issues, is this uh, financial agreement on 
who is in charge of what and which revenues go where and who pays for what. I'm trusting that they'll be able to sort that out. So there's no off-ramp on that. The only off-ramp, and I know that there are citizens around this uh, city that, that do not like this plan, speak against this plan, um, I don't think fully understand or appreciate the benefits of the plan, and especially in the suburban areas, um, would not be unhappy if the plan was shelved or scrapped. Uh, and so the time for the for the public to weigh in on that is at election time, and that, that happens this fall when we elect our municipal representatives. And the fact that the mayor said that, you know, it, it's in danger if you get a different mindset around that table uh, should alert everybody who wants this project to go forward to select councillors who want it to, to also go forward. On the other hand, if you're of the other opinion, and you want to kill this project, you might look for candidates who would do that for you. I'm hoping that it, and maybe it's against hope because this is Hamilton after all, but I'm hoping that it doesn't become another one of those divisive, polarizing um, issues that tears the community apart. Why would Hamiltonians want to accept less money for buses rather than more money for LRT? Well, that... that uh, you know, would befuddle me if that were the case. Uh, other than, I suppose, um, if people think that the LRT only helps a part of the city, but if we get more money for buses, then my neighborhood will get more buses as well. But I think this plan, uh, you know, the, the, the so-called BLAST network, uh, is going to provide LRT for the core from, from Stony Creek, essentially, to McMaster University, uh, but it also branches out and assists other areas of the city uh, with uh, more buses and so on. That's the intention of that particular plan. So, you know, politicians have to do a better job, I suppose, of explaining that to us so that we fully grasp and understand and not react viscerally to um, a concept that we may or may not like. Larry Deani has been with us, former mayor, uh, former uh, mayor, city of Hamilton. Larry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Former Canadian hostage Joshua Boyle made an appearance in an, in an Ottawa courtroom today after being charged with 15 offenses, including sexual assault. Uh, this followed his release from captivity in Afghanistan just a couple of days after he got back, right up until uh, almost New Year's Eve. Uh, so quite surprising to all of a sudden hear that this man is now in jail, in detention. To talk more about all of this, Ross McLean is with us, crime specialist, security expert, RossMcLeanSecurity.com to find out more. He is with us now. Ross, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year, Scott. And I was going to say, we might have to start when we're mentioning this guy's name, Joshua Boyle, air quotes, hostage from Afghanistan. You know, uh, when I first, and I know there's only so much we can say here, because there is a publication uh, ban on this uh, case. We do not know who the victims were, uh, we can assume, but we can't go there. Um, But something just didn't seem right with this, right from the beginning. Did it sit right with you when you first heard it? No, not not at all. As we talked about it, it didn't sit right with you. It didn't sit right with your listeners. It doesn't sit right uh, with most people. And, you know, that's one of the things you look at when you're trying to, analyze somebody's story and i think what 
What's happened with the charges now, Scott, is I think it requires a second look uh, with, a, with a stronger lens at what his activities actually were uh, when he was over in Afghanistan. And I say that in light of the fact one of his charges that he's alleged to have committed now, Scott, is of public mischief, which was lying to the police about an investigation that they were doing. Now, that's an allegation. But as, as we all know, if we know someone who doesn't tell us the truth once, there's a good chance they didn't tell us the truth before. So perhaps that's something that requires a better looking into for the Canadian people. Uh, how does the U.S. feel about this? Because you would think that uh, they would be quite interested in chatting with him. I know that they did. I also remember that when he, before he actually came back to Canada and it was announced that he had been free along with his family, um, I remember TV crews, news crews asking his parents in Smith Falls because uh, it was thought that he was going to fly into the U.S. And his dad kind of made a comment about the U.S. Like, you would never fly there and, 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 and he didn't really say much but what he did say was extremely confusing as if he didn't want to go near the United States uh, whether it was for moral reasons around Donald Trump or whether because he would get there and be interrogated I don't know but it, it just seemed to have a very odd feel since day one well you've really picked up on something there that I'm, I'm certainly looking at Let's look at the place where he was picked up when he was, uh, once again, I'll use air quotes, rescued, because we don't know if it was the gunfight like was said or what happened. Where he was picked up and rescued from was Islamabad, Pakistan. Now, that's the place that's in the news today, because that's where President Trump, why President Trump has said he's cutting off his funding and his aid to Pakistan because of the extremists that are being har- harbored in that area What's important is an area where the extremists are on the Shia side of the coin. We've, we've talked about this before, that Canadians, everybody needs to learn the difference between Shia and Sunni Muslims. Iran, mostly uh, Shia. Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, mostly Sunni. But there's an interesting uh, point here. Pakistan is mostly Sunni. But apparently the people that hold most of the positions of power in Pakistan are Shia. That's the same as what happened with Syria. Syria was the same way. It was a Shia uh, rule over Sunni people. So that area is very much in, 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 in the take right now. The Haqqani network that was holding him is a Shia-friendly network. And we see what's going on in Iran today. So I think there should be a lot more investigation into what he knew and who he was talking about and, and what exactly he knows. Why the publication ban? Well, the, the chief, actually the chief uh, Bordalo, chief of the Ottawa police, he was questioned about that uh, directly by Joe Warmington of the Toronto Sun on Twitter. And he came out and said, well, there's a, not so much the publication ban, but why they didn't, uh, I'm sorry, reveal and put out a news release upon his arrest. And they said that's because they don't want to identify the victims. So typically, and we don't know in this case because it hasn't been put out as to who the victims are, and I don't know, I wasn't attending court. But typically, if you have got a, a father involved with children or a father involved with a a wife or something like that, you don't name them because that would serve to identify the victims. Hmm. So that would be one of the reasons that they that there's a publication ban on names. Uh, getting back to uh, the United States, how do they feel about this? We haven't heard much from them on this. Surprised? 
Well, I, I give you my humble opinion and analysis on it. I think Toronto, uh, Canada, has not. We have not really shown ourselves to be a robust arm-in-arm walker with uh, the United States on activities that go on in that area in dealing with terrorism. Uh, we're we're doing in many ways the opposite. We didn't have our jets over there. We pulled them back. You know, we paid. We made payments to Omar Qadar, who was in Gitmo. Um, you know, we were just talking about reopening our Iranian embassy. So I, I think that the U.S. is looking at us and saying, I, I, I'm thinking that they don't think they need us too much to do what they need to do to go forward. That's my, that's my opinion on this. I think that the U.S. is going to do what they're going to do. When will we find out more? Do you think we will find out the details of this case, or will it be like the Aaron Driver, where we really don't know what's happened or what's gone on, because obviously that victim's dead, but in this situation, everyone seems to be alive. Will we find out more? Well, I'd like to think that some of the media companies, we've seen them do this in the past. They have challenged publication bans when you see them on all sorts of things, whether it's on uh, Mayor Rob Ford's warrants at the time or or another publication ban protecting, protecting somebody's family who's fairly well-connected. And if there's an immense public interest uh, in a subject, we've seen where the courts have ruled that there's an immense public interest, uh, that these bans can be lifted. So I think there's going to be uh, an argument in court, because don't forget, this just doesn't tie into this man's uh, being over as a hostage in the Middle East. It ties into his release into the crimes he's committed here, into his uh, visit to the PMO's office, and and, uh, all of the things that are going on right now. So I think there's immense public interest in knowing what is going on. So we'll have to see if we've got some uh, good lawyers working at some of the media companies who are going to go and try and get this loosened up, as opposed to it'll end up like some cases. We get a publication ban, Scott. We hear nothing Mm. for months. Like, let's look at the mosque shooting in Quebec, where we have someone who shot up a mosque in Quebec. The public knows nothing to this day anymore about what happened there, even though it happened so long ago because of a publication ban. And I think this is information that we need to know. Is there any reason to believe this is related to some sort of uh, terrorism sympathy or uh, or attack or, or relationship in any way? Is there any reason to believe this is terrorism related? Well, certainly he was supposedly held by terrorists. And one of the things we see... And we, we don't know about the criminal charges in this case with the victims, but one of the things that can happen to people who are held hostage in situations like this is the Stockholm Syndrome, which you know many of your listeners and you will be familiar with, where you're a hostage for a long enough period of time, eventually you start to flip and you start to care for and take on your hostages' point of view and your hostages' things and you defend them. So you know there was some concern that Mr. Boyle, when he went over there, was already that way. You know, did he turn more that way? There was a statement uh, issued by his wife that seems to make some talk about his mental state. And even for his wife, what is her mental state, having been over there held hostage as well? And I'll just point out this uh, sort of irony, Scott. The charges that are laid against uh, Mr. Boyle that are the allegations against him now, uh, assault, sexual assault, unlawful confinement, uttering threats, administering a noxious thing. Those are all charges that could have been laid against his hostage takers when he was being held, Have if we had had the right to be able to lay charges against them. I understand the U.S. asked Boyle uh, when they interviewed him why he was in Afghanistan, and he didn't provide them with an accurate answer. I don't think we have an accurate answer yet, so we're going to have to wait to see 
if we get that answer. Or, you know, one of the things with intelligence uh, these days, uh, Scott, is it's got a best before date on it, right? He's been back for a little while now. You need to be able to act fast. In fact, that is one of the things that we saw that uh, President Trump's administration did when they took over the battle against ISIS. The way it worked before, Scott, was the rules of our engagement where the, the, the special forces fighting on the grounds, they basically had to wait three weeks for a bunch of generals in the Pentagon to decide if it was a good idea to go and attack or not. And by then, everything had changed in the theater. Uh, the president changed it, and he said, if you think you've got a target to attack on the ground, uh, go ahead and do it. Don't bother waiting for the Pentagon to tell you. And as a result, with being able to act on such fresh information, we see that ISIS is now has been brought down to just a shadow and a sliver of its former self. I wondered uh, why back at Christmas the Prime Minister would sit with a picture, uh, sit for a picture with the family. I mean, I, I don't think he's, he hasn't done it with my family. I'm sure he hasn't done it with yours, I'm guessing. <laughs> why would, and I remember thinking, why are you doing this? Why are you, you know, and, and, like it was just pure politics. It was just pure selfie. Well, how, how are we reacting now? Well, it ties into, actually, another interview that the Prime Minister gave where he talked about he believed that you could rehabilitate many of these people who are coming back who fought in uh, for ISIS uh, and in Syria and people like, similar to this Mr. Boyle, he was, in the, he was in that area. The Prime Minister said some of these people could certainly be rehabilitated and turned into a strong voice against radicalism. You know, was, was that the nature of his thinking that this was a good reason to meet with this man? Uh, or was it was it some other reason? I mean, Mr. Boyle claimed that he he was friends with Mr. Trudeau, and we know that definition of friends with Mr. Trudeau is a varying one, based mm. if you're the Aga Khan or Mr. Boyle or <laughs> or somebody else. But since 2006, and that they had many common interests. What does that mean? We don't know. The Prime Minister's office released no details about their conversations or even who arranged the meeting and how it was done. Which this is while an ongoing police investigation was ongoing, presumably. Scott. Well, that's exactly like, you know, wouldn't there have been someone in the prime minister's office that had said, you know what? There's been an investigation going on since two days after this guy got back in October. This is not a good idea for you right now. I mean, could they possibly be unaware that there was an ongoing investigation into this guy? Well, there's where you're stuck with two questions, either of which are, are good for the PMO's office, which is, did you met him anyways? Or how come you didn't know about it and you ended up meeting them? I mean, either answer is really good uh, for the PMO's office. But I would like to believe, despite, you know, and, I, and I'm critical quite often of some of the things we hear our politicians who are in charge of our national security. I'm quite critical of what they say, full well knowing, though, that sometimes, Scott, they're saying things while they're really doing all the work we need done in the background. I'm not always confident of that, but I'm pretty sure that's going on. So I'd like to think that, uh, you know, CSIS, the RCMP, uh, they did not leave this guy alone from the time he got back into Canadian uh, hands until the time he was arrested. I'd like to think that they were on top of that. And if they were, did they give a heads up to the, uh, to the PMO's office? That's a question I think everybody would like to know an answer to. Obviously, we can't make references to this case, but I'll go back to something you said earlier, Ross. Uh, in other cases where there is situations of assault and it involves the family, do they often not publish the family's names for that reason? It's one of the reasons that they do it. It's one of the reasons that they do it. Although we all know in certain cases, because someone has become such a public person, 
it's it's almost nonsensical to have the ban on unless there's some other good reason for it. So as I said, let's see if some media companies step up and start asking uh, for at least parts or certain parts of this ban to be lifted. Well, because don't you think that the ban is just creating more confusion and more questions? Absolutely it is. When I, when I talk with companies or people about doing crisis management, I always tell them, get out as much objective information as you can right away. Otherwise, you, you create a vacuum that leads to speculation, that leads to be a story being filled in that may or may not be accurate, and you're sort of defenseless. If, if there's information you can give that is not going to compromise the prosecution and the investigation, then put it out there. Uh, put it out there. Uh, you know, it's 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 going to be very interesting to see how this how this plays out. Uh, it's just it's just shocking these allegations that what he's what he is alleged to have done is is really quite shocking. And as you say, out of that whole family, if, if we don't know who the victims were and what the actual allegations were, but there's a number of counts. Well, and again, it it, it, le- it le- leaves you wondering whether he has any involvement with these groups that held him captive anymore. Well, typically, and like I say, we don't know here, but in general, in general, when you see these uh, these terrorist groups in the Middle East, we've, we've had reports come out of there that when you come over there to join their group, they make you rip up your passport, uh, they make you do certain things, maybe you'll have to go and kill somebody or do something to show that you're the real deal, that you're buying in. You know, they do that with gangs where they maybe tell somebody you have to go mug someone uh, in front of us so we can then take you to court or ratch out to the cops if you're a rat on us. So they do things like that. So is he forced to be involved, uh, you know, in, in certain acts that changed him? Is is, is his mental state going to be a defense or, or, or an issue in this court case? I imagine it probably will. So this is these are things that are yet to be determined. Uh, surprised that uh, it's been announced that uh, Boyle has retained high-profile Ottawa criminal lawyer uh, Lawrence Greenspawn. Well... You know, it's <laughs> it's interesting. The lawyers that uh, represent different defendants, in my point of view, it's always interesting who comes to defend them, and how much of it is pro bono, how much of it is paid, or how, why and how it's being done. I mean, certainly that lawyer has a, a stellar reputation doing a job, um, so he's got him working on his side, uh, and that's something that we're going to have to wait and see. It's 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 surprising. I know if I know lots of people who've been in trouble with the law before, and uh, the lawyers, first thing they do is they do a wallet, a wallet appendectomy there, if you will, hmm, to hmm. make sure you can afford them. Because these trials, a trial like this, will be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars if you were paying for the defense yourself. Uh, are, are we, do we, would we know, or will we know who is paying for this? How is he retaining this high price, high-profile counsel? Uh, we'll, ha- we'll have to see if that question gets asked. I mean, that was certainly a question that was talked about with uh, Omar Qadar's uh, lawyer, uh, who's paying for it, who's got a financial interest in it, uh, you know, when settlement money comes out or, or these sort of things. It's always a question, you know, when you've got someone who's who's paying for it as to why it's being paid for and, and, and what the reason is. And, hey, look, sometimes it absolutely is for altruistic uh, pro bono needs and the sense of being able to step in to make sure that at least the case gets started and examined on the right foot. Uh, this has been adjourned until Monday. Uh, will we know more then? Well, we'll see if there's an emergency uh, court hearing by the uh, lawyers for the media companies to go in and ask mm. to have more of this information released. I mean, that's where we're left with now. 
and we've got a publication ban. We've seen lots of criticism uh, by by media companies about publication, other publication bans in the past, saying that they were unnecessary and it didn't really work in the public interest. And and so the lawyers are quite ready. They've got their arguments and their case law all lined up. So we'll see if we uh, we'll see if that happens, Scott. Ross McLean has been with us, crime specialist, security expert. RossMcLeanSecurity.com, former Canadian hostage uh, Joshua Boyle, making an appearance in Ontario courtroom today after being charged with uh, 15 offenses, including sexual assault. Ross, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in uh, Bailey Gibson. She is the 24, uh, sorry, 23-year-old who is auctioning off her virginity at the Bunny Ranch. This is uh, a famous uh, brothel that is located, I believe, in Carson City, uh, Nevada. You can go on the site and uh, actually read Bailey's blog as to why she is doing this and the reasons for it. Uh, rather than me read it to you, I will let her explain it. So uh, joining us now is 23-year-old Bailey Gibson. Bailey, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. So Bailey, when did you decide to do this? Um, I have been thinking about this for three years. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I just recently decided to um, go ahead and pursue it. <clears throat> and what made you decide to do it now? Um, well, a number of things kind of led up to me reaching out to Dennis. Um, I lost my job in October, mm-hmm. and um, I originally, three years ago, um, I was in a bad relationship, and I had my heart broken. Um, and then after that, I kind of decided that I want, I didn't want to wait for marriage anymore. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I te- wanted to, yeah. So, uh, so tell us about your upbringing. I understand you were, uh, adopted and, and grew up in a very religious environment. Yes. Yes, I was. Uh-huh. What can you tell um, us about that? <clears throat> well, it, I lived in a, um, in a, in a little gated community in the suburbs of Sacramento, um, with my adoptive family. Um, I was adopted when I was one, so um, I lived with them until I was 15, and then I went to boarding school, <clears throat> and then, um, yeah, I never went back home. So what? my childhood was pretty sheltered. <laughs> so what What were your parents like? What was it like for you as a kid? Um, You know, I would say I had a pretty normal childhood, other than, like, I mean, it was normal to me, you know, not having... Um, you know, being able, I didn't, I wasn't allowed to like watch TV. So, uh, it would just be Little House on the Prairie. I don't know if you know what that is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Um, so like very tame things. Um, but they definitely wanted to protect our minds, I think, growing up. And so that was why all the precautions as far as, you know, the visual stimulation and whatnot, and, you know, only listening to Christian music. I think they, they did it out of a, you know, healthy place. Right, right. So they were a loving family. For sure, yes, absolutely. What about other siblings? Um, I am the youngest of six in my adoptive family, right? and um, the second oldest of 13 in my birth family. <clears throat> the second oldest of 13. Now, um, and, and all the, the kids in the family that you grew up in, were they adopted as well, or was it a mixture of both, or how, how was that? My adoptive parents had four natural children, right. um, two boys and two girls, and then they adopted me and my sister. Right. But we weren't biological. 
siblings. Okay. Uh, so did you always know you were adopted? Yes, I did. Okay. Um, so uh, you grew up in a pretty sheltered household, it sounds like. Um, no real exposure to pop culture, pop music, uh, that sort of thing. What about boys? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> My um, dad was an elder in the church, so it was just kind of like a very, we were kind of all expected to wait for marriage. Like that was, you know, just like the bottom line. Like nobody even thought to have sex before marriage because, I don't know. And, you know, as far as like dating, like my dad would interview um, the men I went on dates with. When I did return home from boarding school, I had like a pre- like a boyfriend for a brief second. And um, yeah, but he definitely, they were on top of it. Like I, if I did date, I only ever have introduced my parents to one person, but mm-hmm. I mean, he got interviewed. <laughs> so right. after that, I decided not to bring any more boys home. <laughs> so was there any conflict between you and your parents about this? Um, no, they know they're on board or not. On no, board, not about, really, not like, about, not about the auctioning off, but just about growing no. up. Was it tough for you? Were you arguing with them? Hey man, I want to do this. I want to see this. I want to, whatever. Was there conflict? You there? know, not, not really. Um, I, I remember wanting to have sleepovers, uh, you know, with, with my, my female friends when I was growing up and that was always a no. Um, I'm not really sure why, but, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, it wasn't too much of a conflict as far as like, oh, you said I couldn't listen to hip hop, but like, I mean, I guess like a little bit when I was growing up, I had, um, I would have to sneak like watching shows. So like, we, mm-hmm. me and my sister would always charge up the on-demand uh, um, right. account. So then, yeah, they would never be too happy about that. Um, but I mean, otherwise, no, there wasn't really any conflict because it was their way or no way. Right. So at 15, you were sent to a boarding school. How come a boarding boarding school? Um, just because of those, like those little things, uh, like, you know, charging up the account and then, um, you know, sneaking hip hop behind their back. I think that's ultimately what led to me being sent away was just because like I wanted to, um, you were a rebel and they wanted to somehow harness this. Yeah, yeah, sure, you could say that. So yeah. were, did your other siblings go to a boarding school at all? Nope, just me. So, so were you the problem? Were you the problem child in that respect? I definitely, I think, have always been like the black sheep of the family, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I don't think I've ever like, I don't know. My parents are just, we just didn't super see eye to eye like they wanted they had like a life for me planned out you know what was that life like um I think it was just to be like a good girl go to you know high school you know obviously wait for marriage no drinking no drugs no you know anything that would look um sinful Mm -hmm. I guess and uh you know like I definitely was raised with the you know the motto images everything um did everybody in the family play by those rules or were there others they did oh no and and your parents were flawless in that in that regard they no they just know how to play the game my siblings they don't it's not really so much like they're actually who my parents wanted them to turn out to be it's more like I don't know. Not all of them, of course. Like, I have a couple of siblings. I don't want to just, like, bash on my siblings. But, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. If I'm going to be truthful, yeah, for the most part. Uh, so tell us about your boyfriends. Um. Okay. 
so uh, <laughs> like ever for well no so uh, have you had a lot of boyfriends you were I was reading in your bio on your blog that you said that you know you were waiting for marriage and you found out he did he wasn't and then you know like what are you doing this for you're obviously very uh, uh, broken yeah. about all of this tell us the story sure so um, okay so it's kind of a funny story my parents um, I ended up coming to Milwaukee in 2014, August of 2014. And um, I was uh, shortly after moving, I got a job. And um, at my workplace, I met somebody. And um, my my living situation was um, kind of like, I don't know, like not for sure. And I really liked him. And then you know, we just, we were young and dumb and made a really rash decision and decided to move in um, together after like a month of knowing each other. <laughs> so then... And how um, old were you then? I was 19. 19. Okay, go ahead. 19. And then, um, yeah, so we, he was a Christian and um, at that time I was waiting for marriage and so was he. Well, he had, he was celibate at the time, and but he was also Christian, so he um, definitely respected my decision to wait. And then um, in the fall, like a few months after we were um, dating, uh, it was it happened to be Valentine's Day. He went and um, slept with his ex, and like his, he had told me he was going to be with his daughter, and it was like her day, and then like ended up going and sleeping with his ex and like I found out when we got into an argument he used it to hurt me and then um yeah I just like after that I just wanted to get away from him and so I left and um moved out and then decided that I needed an alternative because I didn't think waiting for marriage was going to be the best route for me anymore like I just felt like if if what I felt with him wasn't real then I didn't want to ever take that chance again and fall in love with someone who didn't have my best interest in mind. So you felt you were hanging on to this for the wrong reasons? Correct, yeah. Um, So did you um, end up meeting your real parents? Did you know your real parents? So um, it was an open adoption. So I knew my birth mom growing up. Right. Um, But she she would come to, like, plays and recitals that I had or soccer games occasionally. And then um, when I was 18, well, when I was, like, around 13, my parents, uh, like, stopped having, letting me have contact with her. So then um, I needed to uh, wait until I was 18. So I waited. How difficult was it to stop talking to your real birth mother? I mean... Emotionally, it was a little bit hard for sure because I had an attachment there. But I mean, it wasn't that hard to just like stop because my parents simply erased like everything. Like they, they we moved, they um, changed like phone numbers. Like she was unable to find me. Right. And then um, hmm. yeah, when I was eighteen, I reached back out, and then I never knew who my birth father was until um, so when I came back from boarding school when I was eighteen. My parents grounded me to a hotel and told me if I didn't join the military, um, they were going to withdraw financial support. So I ended up going through um, MEPS and got an 84 on the ASVAB. And then right before swearing in as a helicopter mechanic, Hmm. my birth dad found me. And then two weeks later, I was on a plane to North Carolina where he lives. And then 
Um, I stayed with him for a couple months before moving to Wisconsin. So what was it like w- getting to know him and comparing the two families or the, or the, two, uh, the two parents, two sets of parents? Sure. Um, I definitely think that my uh, birth parents did the right thing and gave me up because, I mean, to be honest, it seems like one of my parents, my uh, birth parents is definitely still kind of like childish in a way. Right. And, um, yeah, so I'm happy with their decision, um, but they're more like friends. Right. I'm like, like I talk to them about anything, like, but they're, they're more like friends. Are you still close with, are you still close with your real parents? Um, I'm close with my parents birth mother my birth father and I don't have the best relationship right and now what about with your adopted family now um my I I do have a a decent relationship with them I talk to my dad almost every day we have a great relationship um my mom had an accident a couple of uh years ago and so she's recovering Mm. so the relationship hasn't fully been able to mend there but right um yeah so what did your father say when, you know, after boarding school, you moved in with somebody, got to know your real parents more? Did, did that bother them at all? Um, I, well, when I left, they pretty much cut me off. Right. So I, they never support, they don't support me financially. They never have since I moved. Like they haven't came to see me. So like, it's not like they, they kind of like just, I'm like cut off now. Right. <laughs> if that makes sense because I went to go find my birth family. So um So that's yeah, I don't know. so that's what did it what sort of strained the relationship with your adopted that, parents when you went yeah. right. And by the way, we're talking well, with think, we're talking with Bailey Gibson. She's a twenty three year old who's auctioning off her virginity at the Bunny Ranch. I'm sorry I interrupted Bailey. What were you gonna say? No, okay. No, go ahead. Nothing. <laughs> so, so, uh, so y- your uh, relationship with your adopted parents became strained when you started uh, developing the re- or redeveloping the relationship with your birth parents. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would say it was strained before then, um, just because like there was that whole boarding school right. history. So, right. I mean, it's been strained since I was younger, but I definitely kind of was the last straw, I think. So what do they think about what you're doing now with auctioning off your virginity? Um, they're, they're aware of it. I haven't, like, made it, um, you know, it's not a secret. It's, I've told Have you them, talked to them about them it? For a year. Yeah, for, I, I mean, like, I told them a year ago when I began to, like, seriously think about it, I think. And what did they say? A year ago. Um, my dad said, we'll pray for you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, my Did you say you will pray for him? <laughs> no, no, I, that was no, that, that was flip. So your yeah. so your dad said said he'll pray for you, but obviously so obviously yeah. he's upset about it. No, I don't think he's upset at all. He's actually kind of supportive. Like he'll ask me how it's going, but he's not like super into it. Like he's not he definitely I think still has hopes that I won't go through with it. Right. But I've Yes, definitely. Have thought and about what about your mo- what about your adopted mother? Does she have any reaction to this at, at this point? Um, not. I don't. I'm pretty sure she has, but like my yeah. dad probably just didn't tell me. And what about your siblings? Uh, your adoptive siblings? Have you spoken to them about this? I have spoken with two of my siblings about it. Two of my eldest siblings don't talk to me, so right. um, the ones that do, <laughs> I told. But um, yeah. What do they? What do they think? 
Um, well, my sister is like super on board with it because she's like a huge feminist and is like, yes, you should be able to do what you with you what your with your body what you want with your body. And um, and then my brother is like super against it, like mm. yeah. And do you think this is you rebelling against your upbringing? No. When people ask you why you're doing, when people ask you why you're doing it, why are you doing it, Bailey? Um, I'm doing this because it's it's honestly for like a bunch of reasons. It's not really for one reason. Like I know you probably want me to say because my heart's broken, or you know, because Mm. like I have no money, and it's definitely like probably a, a. collection of those things like yes I did go through a heartbreak and that's what initially made me look into this but I'm not heartbroken anymore this is a decision that I've made for myself and this is just the way that like I I feel the most comfortable doing it I wouldn't want to give it to somebody who could you know like leave me and do you think you'll have nothing to show for it do you think you'll regret this in the end no definitely not no uh what has this ride been like so far great it's been like a whirlwind to be honest it just picked up so quickly um we did the photo shoot and then got some pictures out and you know it's beginning to catch a little bit of steam and it's it's definitely an exciting process to see you know something that i thought about for so long something so intimate and sacred like being able to like put this out there and you know, be able to start seeing some action happen around it is definitely... I feel odd saying this, but um, uh, what are the logistics around this intimate act? I mean, is there a timeline? When when, when does this happen? When do the bids stop? How, how does this all work? So um, the timeline is kind of up in the air right now. We're hoping for the... Um, around October for... Uh, the consummation but i mean it's still like nothing's in stone um yeah i'm not sure i i know the bunny ranch is going to be keeping um the brothel i'm going through they're going to be uh having updates on me on their website so so october that seems like quite a ways away you're not anxious to get this over earlier or does it matter um i think it's they're just allowing we're allowing for more time for people to like see what I'm doing and then be able to get, you know, as many bits as possible because, um, yeah, like that we want this to become like a very like known thing before we, yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Do you have any fears about this? About selling your virginity? Mm -mm. Do you, do you ultimately get to pick who you have or is it the top bidder? It's going to be the top bidder, um, but of course, like if I'm sure if I didn't feel comfortable, I would, you know, it wouldn't just happen against my will but i mean i'm most likely going to be comfortable i mean i don't have unrealistic expectations right so what are you expecting um a lot of money (laughs) danny do you have a figure in your head i definitely have a figure in my head i'm thinking at least 10 million for sure 10 million eh wow yeah absolutely holy smokers (laughs) Wow, I think you might get a lot more convincing uh, to do it for $10 million. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could go back. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, uh, That seems like an extraordinarily large amount of money. Um, Is that realistic? I would say so, because, I mean, Natalie Dillon went for, she was another virgin whore, so to speak, who uh, she was going to sell her virginity through the Bunny Ranch. And um, she made, she was, I think the highest bid was 3.7 or 3.9 million. 
And um, I mean, I just think that like where we add in our times and, mm-hmm. you know, like I feel like this is going to be more excited. I feel like probably not as much, in my opinion, maybe, I don't know, like maybe not enough bitters happen because like there's so much pressure from society like to be not wrapped up in something like this, which is, I don't know, in my opinion, stupid, but um, I don't know. I feel like with social media, how it is, and, you know, if we get, like, the coverage that we need, then yeah. I think that it's not an unrealistic amount at all. I what what do you higher. think What do you think the experience will be like? Um, definitely life-changing. <laughs> hmm. um, I mean, I think that... Is that because be of like, the experience or the finance? Um, I was going to say the experience, actually. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about the financial part. I think that's going to be a very um, impactful moment, too, to see my bank account have money in it. Mm. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But um, I think that, like, for as far as for the experience, I mean, I've always wondered what it would be like to have, you know, the real thing, like, I'll go all the way, mm-hmm. you know, vaginal intercourse. And, um yeah, I don't know. I think that it's going to be amazing because it's. I'm going to have nothing to compare it to. And even if it's bad, I feel like it'll still be good because whoever it is, it's probably going to be well experienced and they'll be able to show me the ropes. So mm. What do you say to those that, and I've read some of the comments after your blog, don't do it, don't do it. What do you say to those people? <laughs> I say, I don't, I'm, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I I feel like everyone has an opinion for sure, but every person that I've ever talked to, or every female, I should say, every female that I've had the opportunity to discuss something as intimate as this with, you know, every female that I've ever talked to, except for the ones who have married the, you mm-hmm. know, their first timers, have all told me that they regretted the person who it was with. They didn't regret doing it, but they regretted the first person it was with. And I'm, I've never regretted waiting. Not mm. one time. Every single time that I felt like giving into temptation or having sex and I held out, I never regretted not giving it to that man because, like, ultimately I'm, like, still single. <laughs> so There you go, yeah. You know? All right, so uh, I don't know what to say other than good luck. Thank you. Uh, Bailey, Bailey Gibson has been with us, 23-year-old who is auctioning off her virginity. You want to find out more, bunnyranch.com. You can read the story and all about uh, Bailey there. Bailey, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing your story. We're not here to judge. Uh, and, go, you know, good luck. I hope it all works out for you. Thank you. Appreciate Take care. <laughs> the Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.